Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. It's time now for the gospel reading, but I have a couple of preliminary remarks before we get to that. The first preliminary remark is about our new worship series, the one we've just begun tonight. During this season of Eastertide, seven stories from the Gospel of John are going to help us reflect on the seven practices of the co-conspiracy. The co-conspiracy is a covenant that we at Galileo Church make with each other from year to year, from Pentecost to Pentecost. It's sort of like membership in a traditional church, but more. More of a deliberate and repeated decision to prioritize the mission of Galileo Church in your life. That covenant-making co-conspiracy is coming up this year on May 23rd, seven weeks from now. On the Sundays leading up to Pentecost on May 23rd, then, we will take a look at seven practices that we have identified as marks or habits of the co-conspiracy. You can find all of those in a document on our website under This Is Us and the menu item Join the Co-Conspiracy. For tonight, we're talking about the practice of sharing material resources to further the church's goals. Now, a second preliminary remark about reading John's Gospel, from which all the texts for this new worship series will come. In this preliminary remark, you have an opportunity to pick, to pick up three new vocabulary words, synoptic, johannine, splendiferous. For a long time, the church has favored the depictions of Jesus found in the so-called synoptic gospels, syn, S-Y-N, optic, meaning seeing together, a label we use for Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's accounts because those gospels are so similar in how they see and help us see Jesus. In one very common way of reading the synoptic gospels, Jesus seems to be on a journey of self-discovery. He is confident in God, God's power and presence in this world God still loves. But he's not altogether sure what that will mean concretely for him. So he demonstrates intense faith in God by living by the law of love, by speaking truth to the powers when love demands it, and by taking huge risks to stand with those who have been marginalized and demoralized by religious and cultural hierarchies of power, privilege, and prejudice. The synoptic Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is in no hurry to declare himself the Messiah, 
Indeed, he pleads with his friends and beneficiaries not to broadcast his identity, whatever it may turn out to be. And we should own this, church. That's the Jesus we like. The one who, like us, seems to be figuring things out as he goes along, wondering whether God really has his back, being brave by living into the fullness of his identity despite the dangers of doing so. In John, well, Jesus is different. He seems so certain from the very beginning. In John, he never asks his friends, who do you say that I am? As he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, in John, he says, I am, lots of times, in an echo of the name that God gave to Moses from the burning bush. I mean, sometimes he literally just says, I am. And sometimes he turns that beginning into an opportunity to throw out a metaphor for his identity. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world, etc., etc. It's those I am metaphors that are part of Jesus' self-naming that we'll be talking about together tonight and for six more Sundays. So how can John have such a different idea about Jesus' story than the other three? Not just in the selection and sequencing of the events of Jesus' life, but I mean his whole way of being, which is not so much about the synoptics process of self-discovery, but instead about his entire ministry as a project of self-revelation. In John, Jesus performs not miracles, but signs. Signs that point to him and beyond him. Signs with a lot of signage. That is to say, signs with a lot of Jesus explaining what he's done and how it reveals the power and presence of God in him, with him, around him. Perhaps you'll remember that John's gospel was written a little later than the other three. An additional generation, at least, of Jesus' followers would have come along since the composition of the stories in the synoptics. There's little chance, actually, that John himself, the former fisherman, the beloved disciple of Jesus, by his side all along with Peter and James, just about everywhere he went, wrote it himself it's far more likely that the Jesus-following community that grew up around John and his memories, a community that scholars call the Johannine community, remembered and pondered and reworked what they had learned from John's teachings and eventually incorporated those teachings into this unique gospel. Which means if you think about it, that the Gospel of John integrates the Christian community's growing understanding of Jesus' identity, their own discovery of his messiahship and all that that could mean for the life of the world. They brought that right into their stories 
about his ministry. That community had worshipped together and prayed together and studied together for a long time. And the illumination that they were granted in hindsight gets exported into the way they remember Jesus. In their imaginations, he does not wonder or wander. He is purposeful and knowing, possessive in the very moment of the purpose and knowledge that the community in his name would come to understand only in time. Everything he does is full of the meaning that they gave to it later. Every aspect of his ministry points beyond itself to a fuller, deeper understanding of God's own invisible self. And I would say about that, they're not wrong. Because after years of contemplating the life of Jesus, it makes sense that we ought to be able to see what he always was, the savior of the world, the hinge upon which all of history turned. Even if it normally gives us some comfort to think he didn't always know that about himself. In fact, and this is our faith-filled confession, church, he was those things all the time. Savior of the world, hinge of history. And telling the story of his life so as to shine a light on him in all his splendiferous glory is one faithful way to tell it. Now for a reading from John chapter 6. With apologies to the Johannine community for the way I've chopped it up. I, even the best stories could use a little editing. Am I right? After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw this large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but... What are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Now, in a part we're not reading, church, nighttime falls. The disciples head home by boat to Capernaum. A storm blows in. They're terribly frightened. And Jesus finally comes to them walking on the sea. Next morning, the crowd in Tiberias returns looking for breakfast. They find that Jesus is not there, and they go looking for him. And now I'm picking up in verse mm, 21, I think. Here we go. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Humanity will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set God's seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. So they said to him, well, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And now, church, we're skipping over some of the long discourse that makes this such a distinctively Johannine story where actions are paired with lots of explanatory words. And I'm picking up in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Humanity and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, here's the work I've got to do tonight, and I've got a shorter than usual time in which to do it. One, show that the feeding story in John chapter 6 is a story about the Eucharist. Two, show that the feeding story in John chapter 6 is a story about economics. Three, show that the Eucharist is about economics. Here we go. John's gospel does not have a do this in remembrance of me scene 
as part of its Last Supper story, where Jesus breaks bread and passes the cup, as in the Synoptic Gospels. In John 13, he's way too busy stripping down for a grimy foot washing sesh, and maybe after that, nobody wants him to serve any food. Instead, John takes the only miracle that is included in all four Gospels, the feeding of the multitude, and turns it into a Eucharistic story. I can say that with confidence because the word Eucharist is literally embedded in the story. Our word Eucharist, which is the splendiferous word for the Lord's Supper or communion, comes directly from the Greek of the Gospels, Eucharisto, which is a verb meaning, wait for it, give thanks. So when Jesus takes that kid's lunch, John 6, 11 says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had Eucharistowed, or given thanks, he gave to those who were seated. And if that doesn't sound like the formula we recite at the communion table every Sunday of the world, which is itself a quotation from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a practice dating way back to the church's very beginnings, well, listen again. We say, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharisto, he broke it. And that's what John says here. He took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it. And then just to make sure, in the story, the next day, when the hungry people go searching for him in hopes of breakfast, the story says, they, quote, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, after the Lord had Eucharistowed. That's verse 23. It's in a verse we did not read tonight. But isn't that a strange way to remember what had happened the night before? Unless, unless you really wanted to stress that what happened there that night was Eucharistic. John's version of the institution of communion. And just one more bit of evidence on this point. Jesus' explanation about himself being the bread of life includes the admonition that if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, ew, you have no life in you. That's verse 53. And that's really creepy and yeah, cannibalistic, unless, unless you already have a Eucharistic practice in your communal life and you understand yourselves to be consuming the gift of Jesus' whole self when you eat the bread and drink the cup, which the Johannine community did. They weren't cannibals. They just took communion very, very seriously. But it would be a mistake to only read John 6 as a story about a sacrament, something holy and mysterious, because John 6 is on another level also very much about economics, about the real, literal exchange of money for food. 
The presenting problem, after all, is about the lack of food and the lack of money to get any food. Philip says if they all worked for half a year, they couldn't buy enough bread to fill those bellies. Andrew has snatched from a little boy the lunch that his daddy packed him, some leftover breakfast biscuits and salty sardines, but it's laughably small compared to that crowd. This is an economic problem all the way down. Even after Jesus does his thing, after he multiplies the loaves and fishes into a feast and sends everybody home with a doggy bag, this crowd is hungry again the next morning and comes in search of another meal. Apparently, nobody had yet told Jesus that if you give a crowd a fish, you feed them for a day. When they find him on the other side of the lake, he says, Oh, yeah, you, you're hungry again. That's why you're here. And then he says something interesting. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. That's verse 27. So here is Jesus demonstrating at least a rudimentary understanding of the economy. The fact that we work at the most basic level to get food. And we eat food in one sad way of narrating our lives so that we can work. It's cyclical, see? Eat to work, work to eat every damn day our whole lives long. That's how it works. Except, except in that next morning conversation about whether following Jesus comes with a continental breakfast, somebody brings up manna. Remember manna in the Exodus? That flaky, savory, bread-like stuff that God sent every night for 40 years while the formerly enslaved Israelites wandered in the wilderness, learning how to be God's people instead of Pharaoh's people. Remember how every day there was enough for that day, their daily bread, but how every sixth day There was twice as much, enough for the seventh day as well, so that all the people could rest on the Sabbath day, following the fourth commandment of the Big Ten to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember how in Pharaoh's economy you work seven days for seven days' worth of food and barely that? Remember how God's economy includes rest as a holy right, R-I-T-E, and a sacred right, R-I-G-H-T, because human beings and animals and even the ground that grows the wheat and the grape are not meant to work all the damn time. Work our lives away. Expend every last drop of energy we've got just to keep ourselves alive. Yeah, that's how it was in Pharaoh's economy, but not in God's. In God's economy, God provides, and sometimes everybody else rests. You, napping, are a demonstration of faith in the God who gives you everything you need to get by in this world. You, napping, are sacred and keeping the commandments. Can I get an amen?
I'm just going to trust that you did that. Thank you. So there they are, Philip and Andrew and probably the rest of them too, doing that impossible math of working for food. And Jesus doing the even more impossible math of God's abundance, God's provision of plenty, God whose giving knows no ending. And yeah, on the sacramental level, if this story is about the Eucharist, the giving of Jesus' flesh and blood for our spiritual sustenance, well, then it is a story about the spiritual economy of grace, about the superabundance of God's love and God's refusal to let go of a single thing God has made. That's what we remember at the table of our Lord every Sunday of the world. That is what we Eucharisto for. We give thanks for God's mercy and God's wide welcome, and we marvel at the lengths to which God would go to have us home. In the sacrament, we are lifted out of the transactional economics of our expectations. Because just like our ancient friends, in our experience, you get what you pay for. You work for your food. You work for everything else you want, even and especially in matters religious. What must we do to perform the works of God, they asked him in verse 28, understanding, or so they thought, that God only gives to those who deserve God's gifts. And in a transactional economy, you demand that anybody who asks for your trust do something for you first. They said to him, well, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing, Jesus? Verse 30. Jesus just keeps swatting that ball back across the net. It's not about work. It's not about works. There's nothing here to earn because it's freely given. It's already yours. Eucharisto. Thanks be to God. But, and, if this story is also about the calculation of work and what you work for and what you can and cannot afford against the hunger in all those bellies, then it is asking us to imagine that the Eucharist itself is also about actual literal economics, about money, about resources, about distribution, about sharing. It's about who's got a little and who's got none. Who will open their hands to release what they have? Who will open their hands to receive what they need? I mean, don't spiritualize it unnecessarily. I'm talking about money. I'm talking about the stuff we use to get the stuff we need to live. In this way, John's story invites the whole church into the practice of what I'm calling the Eucharistic economy. The table of our Lord becomes the locus for our regular examination of our own economic practice. The weekly meal becomes not only our thanksgiving for God's grace, but also a demonstration of our commitment to God's economy. 
where the money we work for is not our own, but is a participation in the community's practice of sharing, of the fluidity of giving and receiving, all of us, all of us together with open hands, all of us together confident that God will give us everything we need. In the Eucharistic economy, the work you get paid for becomes sacred. Just like those naps you take because Sabbath is commanded, just like the stale triscuits and can of truly that you pulled out of your kitchen for communion tonight, there's nothing particularly holy about that food and drink. I mean, you could have had it for a snack any time earlier today, but when you bring it to communion, to the Eucharist, and we bow our heads together, and we pray our thanksgiving for all that God has done for us, whatever you've got on your plate and in your cup becomes to us in faith the body and blood of Jesus as sacramental as any wafer or wine could ever be. So in the Eucharistic economy, the resources that you share with the church become sacred in that same way, in the offering of them, in the sharing of them with the church, in the giving of them to this project of our life together, your work, whatever it is, however badly you're paid, however exhausting or boring or demeaning or exploitative the job, however little or much personal satisfaction it gives you, is here transformed into sacred stuff. Sacred stuff of the Eucharistic economy. And I know, I know, you don't have a lot. You don't have an abundance to share. But very truly, I say unto you, you have enough. And I have enough. And enough enoughs add up to abundance because this is God's economy, baby, and that's how it works. Work for the food that endures, Jesus said. Sharing the fruit of our labor, i.e. the money that we make, for the furtherance of this community's life together, for making sure that everybody in our church has enough, for making sure that our church can continue to be generous and just. This is how we work for food that endures. This is how we Eucharisto. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, 
or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.